Today's uh, message is from Psalm 130. So if you would turn with me or look at the screen um, behind me. So it's on page 518 of the red Bible in front of you. So that's Psalm 130. My soul waits for the Lord. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. It's a word from the Lord. All right, thank you, Jackie, and thank you, Chris. Always good to have you with us. Let's give Chris a hand for leading us in worship. Feels like um, you're here a lot when I'm teaching. I don't know what that means, but... <laughs> kind of a funny coincidence. All right, well, let's open uh, in a word of prayer, and then we will begin our, our conversation here on Psalm 130. <clears throat> Father, we, um, uh, we're grateful, as always, to be together and to worship and to hear from your word, to get to spend time together uh, here on Sunday morning. Um, we know that there are people uh, all over our country right now who... Um, are moving through difficult things. Maybe they don't even have a place to worship this morning because um, uh, of a storm or just the, all the crazy stuff that is happening in our world. And so we, we pray for our brothers and sisters around the world and around our country who are hurting. And for those of us who are here in this place this morning, God, we also bring in uh, to this time and this space a lot of stuff, uh, things that we're uh, wrestling with, sin that we're tempted by, challenges that we're facing. And so during this time, would we be able to hold those uh, lightly? Would you hold them for us so that we can be able to hear from you what we need to hear from you this morning? Meet us during this time, God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So our text today is Psalm 130. We're continuing uh, through the Psalms of Ascents, but I want us to begin this morning in the backyard of the house that I grew up in in Salinas. Should be up here on the screen in just a second. There it is. I was very cool as a seven-year-old. You can see from this picture. Leave that up there for a second, Aaron. Um, as you can see from this picture, the, the backyard of the uh, home that I grew up in for many years was just like, uh, was like nothing back there. It was just this total undeveloped land. I grew up on an acre, which is sort of a unique thing. And for a seven-year-old, an acre might as well be a million acres. And so this, this sort of blank canvas uh, just allowed my seven, eight, nine-year-old boy imagination to go wild. And so in that space, I fought and won many battles. I won the World Series several times. <laughs> and it also became, you know, this uncharted territory for me to explore. I went all the way back to that white fence. You can see that at this point, my dad had started to build another fence, but... Went all the way back to that white fence. So there was all this space for me to explore and to let my imagination go wild. And I would 
guess that around this time, maybe a little bit after this, I started looking for buried treasure in the backyard. And I found buried treasure in the backyard in the form of golf balls. So uh, I don't know, at some point when it was just a ranch, I guess maybe somebody had gone out there and, and hit some golf balls around. But I started digging, I found one, I found another. Pretty soon I had a collection of about a dozen of these golf balls, and I would take them and, and clean them up, and I would put them in this shoebox in my room. Now, one day, me and my dad are at CVS or a CVS-type store. I don't really remember exactly where we were, but we were looking for toothpaste or something like that. And we're, uh, we're walking down that aisle, and in the, the basket of floss or whatever it was, there's a box of golf balls. And the box is open, and some of the golf balls had fallen out. And in my seven-year-old brain, the only thought that I had, at least that I can remember, was those are not supposed to be there. So I picked them up, and I put them in my pocket. <laughs> and we continued to shop. And then we went home, and I still had the golf balls in my pocket. <laughs> so I put them in my box. I added them to my collection, like you do. And a couple of days later, I, I was, you know, doing some inventory, uh, keeping track of whatever the brand was, or they were different colors, things like that. They're all laid out on the floor, and my dad walks by, and, you know, there's a dozen or so dingy golf balls that have been uh, uh, taken out of the dirt, and there's like these two shiny ones. <laughs> and so my dad asked the obvious question, where did those come from? And at that moment, for the first time, it just kind of dawned on me, I realized... I think I stole these. <laughs> so I told him, I found them at CVS outside in the gutter, okay, compounding my sins. And I don't really remember what happened after that, but I, I, I definitely, the sense that I have of that conversation was that my dad knew something's going on with it. Like, this is not, this is not right. <laughs> so here's what I did. I'd love to tell you that I had this like big confession moment and I went and told my dad what had happened and we went back to CVS and I gave them back the golf balls. But here's what I did. I buried them in the backyard. <laughs> and as far as I know, that is where they still are to this day. We are, uh, we're continuing this series in the Psalms of Ascent, Psalm 120 to 134, as we uh, at the same time, we're making our way through the Gospel of Mark. And in Mark, we're learning, of course, all about Jesus and uh, getting into his life and his teaching. But the Psalms that we're kind of, you know, again, reading in parallel uh, are helping us sort of further the conversation about discipleship. And they've been giving us some, some practices and some techniques. We, we said that these were songs that were sung by the Hebrew pilgrims as they made their way uh, to Jerusalem for one of the major festivals of the year. And this was an important part of their formation, and they can be an important part of our formation as well. So we've looked at all these different qualities and characteristics, and one of the, one of the things that we've seen <clears throat> is that there are all kinds of repeated themes, right, throughout these psalms. And one of those themes is the reality of suffering. We've seen this again and again and again. A couple of examples. Psalm 120 showed us how suffering can actually lead to repentance. 
this realization that we're not in a good place can lead us to turn around and head in a new direction. Psalm 121 showed us that when we suffer, when we need help, the only place that we can truly find help is in Yahweh. Psalm 122 taught us that our worship leads us to pursue peace and justice and shalom. In other words, to help alleviate the suffering that we see in our world. Psalm 123 revealed that in our suffering, particularly when we are the victims of injustice, we can find mercy in Yahweh. And then Psalm 126, where we were last Sunday, gives us the promise this sort of crazy promise, right, that even in the midst of suffering, we can find joy. It's a repeated theme all throughout these psalms. And one of the things that that shows us is that uh, it's just a reality of life. The psalms don't gloss over it or pretend like it's not part of the deal, right? Life is difficult. We will suffer. And in this way, and, and in many other ways, the Psalms, of course, are so counterintuitive. How many of you remember, did you see the Lego movie? Anybody remember the Lego movie? What's the theme song of the Lego movie? I think I heard it, right? Everything is awesome, right? A lot of us, we try to live like this. We try to live like everything is awesome all the time. Ivan Illich, a a philosopher and a priest, writes, There is an American myth that denies suffering in the sense of pain. It acts as if they should not be. And not not in the sense of, that's wrong and I need to do something about it, but more in the sense of, like, how dare life give me this challenge, right? But Scripture, again and again, exposes this myth as empty. In the book of Job, we read that man is born to trouble. Jesus says, in this world you will have trouble. And then like we just saw the Psalms over and over again demonstrate that in this life we will face suffering. Now, today's Psalm looks at a particular kind of suffering. Sometimes we suffer and there's no rhyme or reason to it. There's these external factors that are at work, whether that's a hurricane or some sort of tragic event or an oppressive system. We just get beat down by this broken world. But there is also a suffering that is the creation of our own sin, the creation of our own dysfunction. And being able to tell the difference between those two is one of the marks of wisdom. So if you have your Bible open, let's look at the beginning here of Psalm 130. It begins with this cry of distress. Out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. We've seen again and again that Psalms give voice to all sorts of human experiences, and whether you've said these exact words or not, we've all been here, right? We've all been in the depths at some point. We use similar kinds of language. I'm feeling down, I'm low, I'm in it. One of my favorite phrases comes from Jonathan Safran Foer, who wrote the novel Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close. The protagonist of that novel, whenever he's feeling down or depressed or in the depths, he says that he has heavy boots. I love that, heavy boots. This psalmist says they have heavy boots because of the suffering that they have caused, and we'll get into that 
a little bit more here in just a moment. But let's take note of this from these first couple of verses. From this place, this low down place, in the depths, with heavy boots, what does the psalmist want? To be heard. Hear my voice. Be attentive to my pleas. I think it's important that we dwell on this here for just a second. Often when we are in pain, when we are suffering, we just need to be heard. We, we just need to give voice to that experience. We need to be able to say everything is not awesome. And on the flip side of that, sometimes in our quest to be helpful, if we're sitting with someone who is suffering, who's in the depths, are oftentimes we, you know, we give advice or a tip or like, here's what you need to do so you don't feel this way anymore. And really, the best gift that we could probably give in that moment is simply to listen. To be with and to help give voice to the pain that someone is in. So we begin in the depths. Now look what happens in verse 3. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Here we move, uh, we sort of shift uh, into what's gotten the psalmist into this state. Now again, most of the psalms that we've been looking at up to this point, when they, when they speak to suffering, they've been looking at the external kinds of suffering. And we see from our personal experience, from what's going on in our world, from Scripture, that there's no end to the suffering that can be inflicted on us by our broken world, what the, uh, the Bible calls the principalities and powers. Now, Sometimes we do double damage here by blaming this kind of suffering on someone's personal sin. We can uh, insinuate that, oh, your basement flooded because you were gossiping about your neighbor. Or, you know, something like that, right? We, we, sometimes we say these kinds of, thi of things, but uh, we don't really know that that's what happened. Now, having said that, just sort of a, a, you know, word of pastoral warning there. Our sin does create suffering for ourselves and for other people. We've, uh, we've spent a lot of time unpacking the idea of shalom, the way that God created the world to function, this hierarchy of right relationships. And we've said that anything that contributes to the breakdown of that harmony is sin, what we might call anti-shalom, a violation of shalom. And we participate in this as individuals all the time. We do this when we make poor choices that harm ourselves and others, when we take our unresolved junk and we lash out at those around us. We do this when we serve our own interests ahead of others. And instead of being a blessing, we further contribute to the suffering of our friends and family and neighbors. Sometimes the suffering we are experiencing, sometimes the depths we are in are of our own creation. And the critical word here in verse 3 is that word iniquities. And this psalmist doesn't list out you know, specific particulars of what they have done, but again, this is a word that points us towards personal violations of shalom. There's something that they have done to cause themselves harm, to mess up a relationship. They, they, they feel it. They've messed up, and now they're in it, and they're feeling it. 
The psalmist recognizes their sinfulness, but here they also begin to recognize the holiness, the, the otherness, the perfection of God. And they ask the question, who can stand? Compared to what I've done and who God is, who can stand? Our sin and God's holiness are incompatible. It's like those magnets with different poles, right? No matter what you do, you can't get them to stick together. What this is saying is if God kept a record, if God marked it all down, all the ways that we violate shalom, all the ways that we break relationship with him and with others, who could stand? None of us, right? The Psalms say there's none who does good, not even one. And that doesn't mean we don't have the ability of doing some good things. It simply means there's not enough good things that we can do to measure up to who God is. So the first half of this psalm is this invitation to feel this, to feel these depths in order to push us towards confession. Now, if you've been in church for a while, you've probably heard of confession. Maybe you've been forced to sort of spill your guts, like tell all the bad things you've done to somebody. Or maybe you think of like the confessional booth where you go in and you confess your sin and the priest gives you some things to do in response Maybe we have some baggage with this word confession. So let's break it down a little bit. Confession literally means to acknowledge with. Confession is all about speaking the truth together. Speaking the truth with one another. And there's a couple different levels of truth there. There's speaking the truth about ourselves. And that definitely will involve fessing up to our shortcomings. But it also means telling the capital T truth. The truth about who God is and the deepest realities of our world. Let me give you one example of this. In Galatians chapter 5, the author here is a guy named Paul. And he lists out uh, several sins, all kinds of ways that we violate shalom. But he immediately follows that up by listing what are oftentimes referred to as the fruits of the Spirit. Peace, joy, love, patience, kindness. That's confession. That's telling the truth about who we are and who God is. Saying, I have messed up. These are all the things that I do. I'm in the depths, but you, God, are holy. You're the only one who can help me out of this place. It's telling the truth about ourselves and about who God is. And then confession moves us from self-pity to guilt. I know know what you're thinking. Yes, guilt. (laughs) Great, another word that we love. But guilt can actually be a very important force for good in our lives. Okay, self-pity is this sort of shallow response to our sin that often leads to self-absorption and to looking to other people to affirm us, to make us feel better. But guilt can lead to a deeper, wiser response of confession and repentance and forgiveness and ultimately to freedom. Psalm 130 is one of a series of psalms. There's seven of them throughout the larger book called the Penitent Psalms. And Psalm 51 is the most famous of these seven. You've probably heard it before. Maybe you've even sung some lyrics in a song from this psalm. 
The psalm was written by King David after he had done some pretty heinous things, caused some incredible suffering to uh, himself and those around him. We're not going to do a deep dive on Psalm 51, but I just want you to hear the language, hear how he confesses, how he tells the truth about himself and about who God is. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, my sin is always before me. Against you have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me, yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Okay, that's confession. Telling the truth about who we are and who God is. And what we see here in the second half of the psalm is that this can again lead us towards a greater sense of freedom. Let's look at verses 4 through 6. With you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. Now what's interesting here is that we're given a picture, a metaphor that uh, I think shows us that confession and forgiveness is not a formula. We're not told what to do here as much as we are invited to be a certain kind of person, a person who is patient, a person who waits, like a watchman for the morning. Sometimes our, our guilt, when we're feeling it, when we're in the depths, it causes us to do some silly, panicky things, like bury a golf ball in the backyard. So what this picture does, this metaphor, it slows us down. This is not seeking forgiveness so you can just kind of get on with it and move on with your life. The psalmist realizes that seeking forgiveness means waiting. It means this is a process. It's going to take time. There's yet another truth that violates our everything is awesome way of life because we want the quick fix, right? We want it to be over now. We want the, the happy ending, tie a bow on it and move on. But again, the psalmist understands this is going to take some time. Healing this mess that we've made is going to be a process. And so we wait. We wait and we trust and hope that things are going to get better. The last two verses, O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. He will redeem Israel for all his iniquities. In this final stanza, there's this move from the individual to the community. 
And we see that what is true for the psalmist, again, on an individual level, is also true for all of Israel. Confession, forgiveness, redemption, hope. And this all works because of the steadfast love of the Lord. This phrase, steadfast love, introduces us to one of the greatest Hebrew words of the Old Testament, hesed. Everybody say hesed. This word is translated a a lot of different ways. It's actually kind of a tricky word to sort of put into English. And so in your Bibles, you may, as you're reading through, you may see the word kindness. You may see the word loyal love. You may see the word mercy used. In our uh, ESV Bibles, it's steadfast love. And it is used all over the Old Testament to describe God's character. Let me give a couple of examples. Exodus 34, God is speaking to Moses. The Lord passed before him, Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in hesed, steadfast love. Lamentations 3, this verse is born out of just a tremendous amount of suffering. The author is Jeremiah, and he says, The hesed, the steadfast love of the Lord, never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Joel chapter 2, Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in hesed, steadfast love. He relents over disaster. Now, back to Psalm 138 times in this psalm, God is named. Lord, 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 Lord. And it's two different names for God, Yahweh and Adonai. They're used fairly interchangeably throughout the psalm. What that is telling us is that God's hesed, his steadfast love, is not just an intellectual, theological concept to be grasped. No, this is personal. God is named His steadfast love for us is intimate and personal. And because of that, when we're in the depths, when we're in the midst of our mess, we can wait and hope. I buried my guilt in my parents' backyard. And if we're being honest, a lot of us do this, right? We, we take our sin, we take our shortcomings, and we cover them up, we stuff it, we ignore it, we bury it. We don't name it. We don't bring it out into the light for other people to see. We don't share it, we don't confess it with anyone. And then we wonder why our relationships suffer, why we carry so much Anxiety and tension, why we seem to repeat the same mistakes over and over and over again. But our psalm tells us there is hope. You do not need to be defined by your mistakes. I think that part of the reason I buried those golf balls in the backyard is because I didn't know my dad well enough at that point. As a seven, eight-year-old boy, he was still very much this uh, authority figure in my life. And I think a lot of us carry a very similar view of God, an authority figure, maybe a guilt manipulator, 
Maybe, uh, you know, this judgmental guy who's just going to zap you when you do something wrong. I know now that my dad would have helped me see that what I did was wrong and he would have led me through a process of uh, fixing that. But I also know that he would have been very gracious with me because that's how my dad is. He has a lot of hesed for his children. My dad is a nice guy. He's pretty cool. But our Heavenly Father is so much greater than that. To know God as our Father is to know his hesed, his steadfast love, and to know this is the key phrase, I think, in this whole psalm, that there is plentiful redemption. Not just a little redemption, not just enough redemption, plentiful redemption, a ridiculous, abundant amount of redemption. Whatever we've done, whatever suffering our sin is causing in our lives and the lives of others, there is more than enough grace to cover that. There is plentiful redemption for you. This is such good news, at least for me. I think this frees us from trying to justify ourselves. It frees us from shame. It frees us to tell the truth about ourselves. So just two real simple questions for us this morning. The first is, do you know the Father? Do you know the Father whose love for you is steadfast? And then second, is there something you need to bring out into the light? Is there something you need to confess so that you can experience this plentiful redemption? Let's pray. Father, it is difficult to admit our shortcomings, our our sins, our violations of shalom, the way that you want the world to work. And it can be a lot easier to gloss them over or pretend like they're not there or bury them somewhere so we don't have to deal with it. And yet, it is only in bringing them to the light that we can find freedom. So I pray, uh, first of all, God, for uh, each of us in the room that we would know you as a father who has hesed for his children, steadfast love. And also that, God, that we would know and understand and rely on your plentiful redemption, your extravagant, ridiculous, amazing grace for us. Father, if there is something that we need to confess, that we need to bring to light, may we find the right people to do that with so that we can name it, we can tell the truth about it, and we can experience forgiveness and restoration, your plentiful redemption for us, and and move forward from that. Give us the courage to name those things today, God. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.